This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer. Worldwide, I'm Libby Snymer. Former Federal Health Minister Jane Philpott dishes on the pandemic, the fix for long-term care, and her new assignment trying to organize all the COVID-related data in Ontario. And the financial and emotional toll of COVID-canceled weddings. We talked to a lawyer who is also a groom trying to reschedule his big day. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. An Italian study of more than a million patients, 65 and older, found blood pressure medication may offer life-prolonging benefits. The research found those who renewed their pressure medication prescriptions 75% of the time or more were 44% less likely to die over a seven-year period if they started in good health. Those who started in poor health were 33% less likely to die. The study is published in the American Heart Association journal, Hypertension. Americans are kicking their meat-eating habit thanks to COVID-19. Researchers at the University of Missouri predict this year's meat consumption will fall for the first time since 2014. Higher prices and a reduction in disposable income will hurt demand for beef, pork, and turkey, while Americans will eat marginally more chicken. The decline comes as a survey shows more than half of Americans think the food industry should focus more on meat-free products to ease shortages caused by the spread of the virus among meat workers. Just as family law experts are bracing for a surge of women seeking divorces, the federal government has delayed implementing reforms to Canada's Divorce Act. For the first time, the law would provide a comprehensive definition of family violence and require the courts to take into account any instances of abuse when making decisions about parenting. The reforms were to go into effect July 1st, but have now been postponed until next March. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Gone with the Wind has been temporarily removed from HBO's streaming library, citing depictions of racial prejudice in the 1939 movie. When it returns to the lineup, the movie will include historical context and a denouncement of its depictions of romanticized slavery in the Civil War era South. It remains the highest grossing film of all time when adjusted for inflation. Britain's Prince Philip celebrated his 99th birthday this week without a lot of fuss. He spent it quietly with his 94-year-old wife, Queen Elizabeth, over lunch at Windsor Castle, where the royals have been sheltering due to the pandemic. Philip retired from public life in 2017, and by that time he was patron, president, or a member of almost 800 organizations, including many charities. 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. She walked away from the pinnacle of Canadian politics over a matter of principle. Former Health Minister Jane Philpott held a variety of cabinet posts until she was ejected from the Liberal caucus because of her objection to the government's handling of the SNC-Lavalin affair. When the pandemic hit, she went back to her roots and the front lines as a physician. And now Ontario's progressive conservative government is tapping her to organize the province's diffuse and dysfunctional medical data system. Take me back to March when the pandemic hit. What were you doing and and what did you decide to do? Well, uh, like all of us, I wasn't expecting to have all of my spring plans changed. Uh, but uh, I had been uh, expecting to do some traveling and some speaking and some other work while I wait for my new job as the next dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's. But obviously everything was canceled. And uh, the first thing I did was offer to help at our local hospital at Markham Stovall Hospital. And they put me to work at a COVID assessment center, which was very uh, interesting work. And then uh, a few weeks after that, I got involved helping out with a very difficult outbreak that took place at a group home here in Markham. When you decided to go back to work amid the pandemic, did you expect to be right on the front lines like that? Well, I think as the pandemic started and everyone realized how serious it was, as you know, there are lots of doctors and nurses and others who stepped up who had been not necessarily in active practice recently. And I was one of them who thought, you know what, there's a need for help. I'm going to uh, call up the local hospital and see what they need. And uh, I, I didn't necessarily expect to be right on the front lines, but I'm I'm uh, glad I was able to do something to be helpful because this is uh, a very serious challenge for all of us. And the, the more of us that can jump in to help, the better. What was the most surprising thing you found when you were doing that work? Well, I think probably the most profound experience was my work at this group homes. There was a terrible outbreak there out of 42 of the residents. Mm -hmm. 40 of them were positive with COVID. Um, Tragically, six of them died. And uh, there were more than 50 staff members who were also infected. So most of the staff had to leave. And it was a devastating situation that they were facing there. And uh, I certainly learned a lot about how people with disabilities are amongst the most vulnerable among us and are the one, some of those who really need extra protection at a time like this. Did you expect to be on the front lines in that way? No, it was not something, in this case, it wasn't something that I expected to be doing, but uh, the executive director of the of the home uh, was uh, really struggling to find help when the outbreak happened. She reached out to me via a mutual uh, friend and said, we're desperate, can you come and help? And I got on my scrubs and headed down the road and uh, jumped in to help provide care and help them uh, be able to get enough other healthcare workers that uh, that the needs could be met. So it certainly was not something that was ever planned, but it was uh, something that I'm I'm glad I was able to help with and hopefully um, ease some of the suffering that was going on there. Did you feel personally in danger? 
Well, I mean, you think a little bit about the fact that you're going into a situation where you're surrounded by people who have the virus and in those early days were probably infectious, but you don't think about uh, the risk when you know that there are people whose lives are depending upon you. You do do the right thing to protect yourself, but you have to, you, you can't abandon these folks. When you were health minister, was pandemic preparedness something that was on your radar? Yes, it's something that uh, certainly there was a, a reasonable amount of work that was done, especially, you know, when uh, we had periodically had meetings with other health ministers from around the world. There were efforts all along the way to try to have more investments in public health. And it's something that in, in good times and in safe times, governments don't necessarily want to spend a lot of money on. But uh, I think, you know, in, in retrospect, it would be great if we had had stronger public health laws, stronger public health systems in the country. And now, hopefully going forward, we will, because this has been a, a shocking lesson to everyone about the importance of investing in public health. And how do you think we've done? There are areas where, obviously, I think we didn't do as well as we should have around protecting seniors, uh, for example, and particularly those who live in long-term care facilities. Uh, that wasn't necessarily on the, the front of mind uh, in those early days. How do you think we fix that mess? Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of national standards, um, assuming that they are going to be upheld and that somebody's going to make sure that they are actually being followed because, you know, there are, there are many things that, um, you know, that we know about the kind of care that should be there and particularly like staffing levels in nursing homes. There should be serious consideration uh, in terms of bringing it into the public health care system because, uh, you know, we all know we're going to get care if we show up at hospitals. Uh, nobody has to worry about whether or not they'll be able to get high-quality care. And somehow bringing long-term care into uh, a similar system, I believe, would have some significant advantages. Does that mean getting rid of the private operators or just bringing it under the Canada Health Act? It's a matter of whether it's a for-profit or a not-for-profit facility. As soon as you bring the profit motive into the delivery of care, it can certainly complicate things. I think there's some work that has to be done to to make those decisions for sure, but we've seen some pretty concerning statistics, even here in Ontario, around the fact that the outcomes have certainly been worse in some of the for-profit facilities. The Ontario government is tapping you to try to make sense of the information systems. It looks from the appointment that you have a month to try to bring this (laughs) under control. I mean... What are the chances of that? (laughs) Well, I I don't think everything will be solved in a month. Jane Philpott, I think I speak for a lot of people that we really admire you for the way you've stepped up during this. And and thank you so much for chatting with me. Well, thanks so much for uh, reaching out. It's been great to have a chance to talk. Former Health Minister Jane Philpott is the incoming Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Director of the School of Medicine at Queen's University. She'll be advising the province on its new health data platform. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. COVID-19 is wreaking havoc on wedding plans that have been in the making in some instances for years. And because planning a wedding and paying for it is a multi-generational affair, parents and grandparents are losing money as well as missing out on a family milestone 
while couples are scrambling to recover deposits and reschedule their big day. Samuel Michaels is a lawyer who is also planning to get married in October. When it comes to these pandemic canceled events, there just isn't that history. So my team, we basically went back all the way to World War II in 1940s cases, because that's where you do have some comparable situations of companies that could not fulfill their contracts because of these overriding global circumstances. So basically what we found there is that there is a a legal theory, a doctrine called the doctrine of frustration, which basically is a a mechanism the courts will use when it's impossible to fulfill a contract where because of government conditions or global conditions, the parties just can't fulfill their obligations. And in those situations, the courts will say, okay, and we'll unwind this contract, we'll effectively negate that it ever happened and there'll be no penalty to either party because of this frustration event, right? This event that's made it impossible to perform. Do you think that that would apply to all cases of a wedding canceled because of the pandemic? Yeah, so that that's the issue, right? Like the, these cases were a lot more clear cut because you had, for example, a factory that was producing, uh, we'll go a bit hypothetical, let's say the factory is producing furniture and the government said, now you have to produce weapons. So they clearly could not fulfill their contract to produce the furniture. In a wedding situation, if we have the government saying, you know, in a few months, we very well could be in a position where the government's saying, you can have 50 people in a room. Well, if I booked my wedding and I didn't put the number in the contract, right, let's just say in the contract it just says $100 per person, doesn't specify the total people. If I was planning 200 people, the government is still allowing 50. Has the contract been frustrated? I don't know, right? And and this is the question that basically is being taken into the courts now by by parties who have to litigate these, because it's not so clear cut, right? The the couple can say, of course, you know, I wanted two hundred people. The government are saying fifty at most. I can no longer fulfill the the contract purpose I intended. But the venue can just as easily say, look, we just promised to have a venue for you. You can still come into the venue. You can still have people. Maybe it's not what you had in mind. But that's outside the contract, right? In the contract, it was just a price per person. And I don't have a, an answer to that, right? Unfortunately, those situations, you know, some of them will, will end up in court and, and we'll have to wait a year or two to get some decisions that'll kind of bring that, that argument, the doctrine of frustration into the, the modern context. We've heard from an event, um, an event uh, owner as saying that they're just not dealing with deposits now and he doesn't think the industry is is that good enough saying we i I can't deal with this now that answer might be for the individual to just work with the vendor even if the vendor's being you know maybe not completely reasonable in how they're treating the deposit but if the couple's looking at that situation saying look i don't have money to sue i want this venue and i want things to ultimately work out with them um, I don't feel confident, you know, that our sort of legal theory is going to win out at the end of the day. The practical answer for that person might be like, look, you know, the vendor saying they wouldn't deal with deposits. It's not maybe the most ethical or, or, you know, legally ethical approach, but that might be something you have to just sort of. And they have your money your and you through. don't. That's just it, right? Because, you know, you could go to court and in a year get a win, but. 
by that time, like, you, you know, you've already missed the expected wedding day, right? You spend however many thousands to go through the court process. So I've heard of cases where it involves more than just uh, the deposit that people whose weddings couldn't go ahead and their venue threatened to sue them for the entire amount of the wedding. What's up with that? I mean, there has to be a line ultimately where, where you put your foot down and say, you know, no, that that's not allowed, right? You're outside the contract, you're outside of our agreement. And, and for anybody in that position, I, I'd recommend, you know, contact your lawyer, right? Like, give me a call. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it because I think the accommodation is important, but that shouldn't cross over into people being taken advantage of. You're a groom. Your wedding date is in October. So, uh, what are you changing to accommodate this? Numbers, firstly. I mean, we, we were hoping for about 200 and, and now we sort of have a, a contingency plan in place of about 40 to 50. For now, we basically said like mid July, we'll see what the news is there and, and what the government is ordering then. And if they're, they're allowing or it looks like they will be allowing in that 40 to 50 person range, we'll go ahead with that and, and do a larger party the next summer. If the government restrictions are such that it's still, you know, five, 10 people, um, we're probably going to have to postpone and, and just privately do, you know, a little family, like get everyone down to city hall and sign the documents and then, uh, you know, do, do the religious and, and the sort of party portion of things, uh, next summer and into next fall. Samuel Michaels, thanks so much and congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. That was lawyer Samuel Michaels. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. And be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.